Well, the truth about Humam al-Balawi was only discovered on the 29th of December 2009 in the town of Kost, Afghanistan. Dr. al-Balawi was a physician working in Jordan. He was a bona fide operative of the terrorist organization Al-Qaeda. He was well known for his unflinching allegiance to Osama bin Laden and the goals of the Al-Qaeda terrorist network. He'd in fact written many public uh, blog posts where he was uh, condemning Americans and calling for violence against them. And he decided that on a certain point of time, he suddenly decided that he had changed his mind and he loved Americans. And it was kind of a strange thing. Um, I think what happened is he realized Al-Qaeda was going to lose, that the Americans would eventually get Osama bin Laden, and so he decided to side with America. It was a very strange thing indeed. Um, so he went and approached the CIA and offered to cooperate with them, uh, being so well trusted by the Al-Qaeda terrorist network and so entrenched in their dealings, he was able to give the CIA information. It was very uh, obvious to the CIA that he was for real because the information that they gave him was some of the best intelligence they had ever received and they acted on it to great success, and he turned out to be one of the best spies for the CIA against Al-Qaeda. In fact, he was so good that they wanted more of what he had to offer, and so they convinced him to go back to Al-Qaeda and try to convince them that he was actually a double agent and that he was back on their side and would get information for them from the CIA, and this would give him even more uh, contact with sensitive information and he'd be able to do even more for the CIA and he actually did this. He managed to go back, convince Al-Qaeda that he uh, all along was just playing the Americans um, so that he could uh, gain their trust, which he now had done, and so he was able to filter information to Al-Qaeda and he was filtering information to the CIA. Al-Qaeda would give him false information, which he knew was false, uh, so to lead the CIA astray, but what they didn't know is he was still working for the CIA, and so he was also giving accurate information along with the false information back to the CIA and telling the CIA which was false and which was true. And so they were very careful to act on it in such a way that it would not blow his cover. Well, this went on and on. Um, and the, the information that CIA got just kept getting better and better. He kept living this confusing life of being a double agent. He was a former Al-Qaeda terrorist pretending to be an Al-Qaeda terrorist but was actually working for the CIA. But then there was another twist on December 29th, 2009 when his true allegiance became obvious and it was a shock for everybody because Dr. El Balawi entered the CIA compounded cost to deliver his false and true information to the CIA and then detonated a bomb that was strapped to his chest, killing seven CIA agents. The evidence that had been left behind sh showed that this was, in fact, his plan all along. And so El Balan had been a loyal Al-Qaeda terrorist who pretended to be a disloyal terrorist to gain the trust of the CIA and be loyal to them so that he could then pretend to be loyal to Al-Qaeda again so that they could get more intelligence, which he pretended to do all the while actually still being loyal to the terrorists and waiting for the most opportune time to strike at the CIA. The agents who lost their lives 
had absolutely no idea where his true loyalties lay. In fact, they thought the reason he was coming that day was to celebrate his birthday with them. They had prepared a birthday cake for him. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive, Shakespeare said. When a person's loyalty is up for grabs to so the highest bidder is fluid, it becomes difficult to ascertain where their genuine allegiance lies. And this is what we see in our text this evening. You can turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 18. Judges, the book of Judges, we've now moved into the third section of the book. It has been getting progressively darker. It has been progressively more uh, spiritually, morally chaotic, which is the whole point of the book of Judges. This is what happens when there's no king in Israel, there's no spiritual leader, there's no representative of Yahweh in Israel. And so everyone does what is right in their own eyes. This is the theme of the book of Judges. And it starts getting stated now frequently, almost every chapter till the end of the book. This fact that everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Nobody knows what God really wants because nobody's paying any attention to the word of God. Uh, Last week we saw in Judges uh, 17, we met a young Levite who at this point has been unnamed. But tonight there will be a shocking reveal of who this young Levite is. He was a young man that was looking for a place, looking for work and employment, and he stumbles across Micah. Not to be confused with the prophet Micah. Micah is only found here. This guy only appears here in this chapter in Judges. Micah was a man who had stolen um, 1,100 pieces of silver from his own mother. So that's the kind of guy we're dealing with here, somebody who's willing to rob his own mother. And then he kind of grows a conscience and confesses it and gives the money back, and she forgives him in the name of Yahweh. And um, to show how grateful she is uh, to God, I guess, she takes some of the money, 200 pieces of silver, and she builds a shrine um, and has, uh, she builds, you know, she has idols made, custom-made, homemade idols and, uh, and now Micah has set up like a little shrine, which is like a tiny temple, his own private space of worship, and he's worshiping his idols, um, and this is crazy, uh, in case you're wondering. But he gets an upgrade to his little personal uh, shrine when this Levite, this unnamed Levite, wanders into his territory, and he says, how about I give you 10 shekels and a shirt, and you work for me? And the Levite says, that's the best offer I've had. Um, Sure, I will be your own personal Levite. Remember that the Levites were a tribe that had no land allotment given to them. They were scattered among the other tribes of Israel. Their purpose was to be a connection between Yahweh and the people of God. They were supposed to know the law. They were supposed to minister the law to God's people wherever they found themselves. And instead, this guy ditches all of his training and all of his um, uh, birthright as a Levite and acts as a priest for Micah. Micah ordains him himself. Uh, This is after Micah had come up with the previous plan, which was to ordain his own son. Um, So he fires his son. He hires a real Levite, and he assumes that God is blessing him. And so we'll read that little recap in a moment. So we're going to see tonight two errors that occur from reading circumstances rather than scripture. Because that's something that's starting to happen here in the book of Judges, is that people are starting to discern the will of Yahweh by looking at what happens and what works, rather than going to what he says in his word. And people still do that today. Two errors that occur from reading circumstances rather than the Bible. Firstly, opportunity is not always blessing. A lot of people think of 
if, there's an if it's an open door, it must be from God. Secondly, success is also not always blessing. So just because something works and it looks like God's blessing it doesn't mean he is. And so we're going to see that unfold in this passage. So let's look at the first one. Opportunity is not always blessing. Let's get a recap from chapter 17, verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Remember that he's not a Judahite. He's, uh, he's a Levite, but he's living in Judah because they were supposed to live all over the country. But he's moving to a different tribal area, Ephraim. So he goes there and he comes into the house of Micah. Verse 9, Micah said to him, where do you come from? He said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to sojourn where I might find a place. Micah said to him, stay with me. And be a father, a spiritual father, and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living, board and lodging. And the Levite went in. And then verse 13, Micah said, Now I know that Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as my priest. And last week we looked at that concept of, Look, Lord, my Levite where you're not doing what God wants you to do, but there's a certain area that you are doing well in, and so you say, look, Lord, I'm doing this part right. Why don't we pay attention to that? So this is my Levite. Look at how I'm giving to the church. Look at how I'm serving in the church. Let's not look over here where I'm sinning in this area. Let's look over here at my Levite, Lord. And so this is what he's doing. The Lord is going to bless me because I have this Levite. But what happens when you hire somebody who is loyal to whoever's the highest bidder? His loyalty is fluid. His allegiance is up for grabs. And so this is what we're going to see happen. Now, many people mistake convenience for blessing. Uh, they think of opportunity, open doors, as something that God is giving them. And so they discern God's will based on like, well, I was going to do this, but then this opportunity opens, so this must be where God wants me to be. And so as a door opens, it must be from God. These are people that will walk through an open door without checking first to see if it's an elevator shaft, right? All the doors open. It must be safe. So Micah figures that since the Levite happened to pop in, it must be God's blessing. I mean, it's just providential. The Levite's coming looking to me for a job. But as we shall see, easy come, easy go. So let's pick up the, the story, a, a chain of events that gets started now in chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Ashtol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they, you might want to say they, they recognized his accent, that he was not you know, from there. And they returned, turned aside and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, well, this is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me, and I've become his priest. And they said to him, Hmm, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, 
Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that's in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that's in the earth. So just stop there for a moment. Let's, let's just deal with what's going on here. The, the Danites, so Dan is one of the 12 tribes, and they have been allotted land. They were given land in, in Joshua 19, just like everyone else, all the other tribes, except the Levites that were scattered around. But here we're told that there's no king in Israel, and we're told that the, in verse 1, in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then, no inheritance among the tribes had fallen to them. So they're not living in their allotted land. They've been given a land by Joshua, but they haven't occupied it yet. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what's going on here, and we're not going to get into all of it, but probably what's happening is a combination of things. One is, the, when the conquest happened and Joshua led the people in, they started taking land. Joshua dies before all of the land is perfectly occupied by everyone, but there's this promise that keep on doing this and Yahweh will drive out the people from among you. And so one by one, the tribes take their territory and all the other tribes always help them. And it's possible that, you know, by the time they had got 11 of the 12 tribes settled, people were just sort of like, listen, I just want to stop fighting now and get to my farm. Someone else can go and help the Danites. And so the rest of the nation wasn't helping them take their land. So that's one possibility. And that's probably had something to do as people were just tired of the conquest. They were like, this isn't our problem. We've got our land. And so the Danites weren't able to drive out the people from their section of land. Now, if you picture Israel as like a little sliver of land, you're going to see it a lot in the news these days probably, so get used to it. The, the land that was given to Dan is on the western side, a little sliver of land on the western side with a beach, the Mediterranean beach. And what have I taught you? What is that land called? And if, if, you're, if you're not sure of what it's called, that little strip of land, firstly, it was in the news a lot today and yesterday. <laughs> um, that's what it's called now. But in, in their day, who were the people that Samson was fighting? The Philistines. This is Philistia. This is the Gaza Strip. This is the, the place that's in the news now. It's the Danites still haven't got it, you know, apparently. There's this sliver of land, and on the coast, this is Philistia. So these, these towns that were given them, let me just read for you from Joshua 19. Um, Joshua 19, verse 40. The lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clan. See if you recognize any of these names in Joshua 19. The territory of Dan's inheritance included Zorah, Eshtol, Irshemesh, Shalabin, Agilon, Isla, Elon, Timna, remember that one, Ekron, El-Tahel, and then there's a whole bunch of other ones. Um, and the main point I wanted to make there is that these names you recognize from the Samson story. 
So these are the cities that were given to Dan, but now there's Philistines in there. And remember, the whole problem at this point in the book of Judges is nobody's driving out the Philistines. So that's why the Danites don't have land. And so they're looking for land. They want their land. And they decide, you know what? We're not going to try to take the land from the Philistines. Yes, God raised up Samson, and Samson killed a whole bunch of Philistines. But they're still there. Israel didn't rise up and drive them out. And so the Danites say, okay, well, let's go get some land and let's just look for land that's easy to take. So they send these five spies out. The five spies happen to find this tiny little village. Um, they're not Israelite people. They're Sidonians, which are also, um, well, they're just Gentiles that needed, should have been forced out of the area a generation ago, but they're still there. But this is like a little town. They're Sidonians, but they're not near the rest of Sidon. And so Sidon's not going to come and help them. And they're described as, unsuspecting. They're wealthy. They've got space. They've got everything that they need. It's like a little, little promised land there. They've got everything going well with their farms. This is a great territory. They're just sitting there. They don't have a big army. There's no one there to help them. And guess what the Danites, these five spies, guess what they assume? Well, this is of the Lord. This must be of the Lord because it's easy, because it's simple. I mean, remember, that's what they, they actually said that. Um, verse 9, arise, go up against them, for we have seen the land. Behold, it's very good. Does that remind you of anything? Do you remember anyone else ever saying that? Yeah, Joshua and Caleb. <laughs> the ten spies that came back were said, no, no, the land's bad because of the giants there. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, yeah, 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 there's giants, but the land is very good, and God will give it to us. So the report that Joshua and Caleb gave was based on faith that God had promised to give them land, not based on how easy it would be. In fact, it was incredibly difficult, but they had faith. These guys are coming back and saying it's good um, because God must have given us this place because of how easy it is to take. Um, so, I think that's good enough for now. Let's carry on. Let me just make sure so we don't get ahead of ourselves here. Um, Oh, let me just talk about this thing with the Levite. So they, they meet this Levite. They, they recognize him, it says. So it's either because he has, he's, a, he's more well-known than the other Levites, and we will see in the end when we find out who he is that this makes sense, that they actually know him. Or they just recognize from his accent that he doesn't belong there, so they ask him what he's doing there. But it's possible that they actually recognize him. Small world. Lucky for us, there's a Levite who lives here. Um, and so verse 6 Verse 6, the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh. So they ask him, hey, since you're here, since you're a Levite and you're working for this guy, why don't you just help us and tell us, are we going to find a place? And so he blesses it. We don't know how he found out if this is God's will or not. He's making this up at this point. God's not involved here at all. But they're happy, just like Micah was. Look, Lord, my Levite. The Danites go back to their friends. We got this under control. Let's go do it. We've even been blessed by this random Levite that we found there. Um, and the whole purpose that they know that it's from God, verse 7, is that they were quiet and unsuspecting, lacking in nothing that's in the earth, possessing wealth, and that they were far from the other Sidonians, and they have no dealings with anyone, so there's, there's no help. In verse 10, it says, as soon as you go, you will come, he, they're telling their friends, get people together and go, as soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious. God has given it into your hands, a place where there's no lack of anything that's in there. So how do they know that God has given it into their hands? 
because it's easy, because it's an open door, because it's convenient, because this Levite said so. What a contrast to Jacob and Caleb, who knew, uh, uh, Joshua and Caleb, who knew that taking the land was of the Lord because God had instructed them to do it, so they knew God's word and they had faith in God, rather than let's just do whatever's easy. So, verse, what happens is they, they camp, uh, verse 12, at Kiryat Yerim, just west of Kiryat Yerim, which is where the hotel is where we'll be staying if, when we go to Israel, right there in Kiryat Yerim, Lord willing. Um, and they passed on from there, verse 13, to the hill country of Ephraim, and they came to the house of Micah. Now, um, the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to the brothers, do you know that in these houses there's an ephod, remember that's a garment that the high priest used, household gods, a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and they came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and they asked him about his welfare. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved images, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed for war. So they come, they say, we're going to go to war. Levite, come and bless our people. And while you're doing that, they sneak into his house and they steal his stuff. Easy come, easy go, right? Verse 18, when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? This is interesting now. Verse 19, they say to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth. Come with us. Be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be the priest of a tribe and a clan in Israel? So you see what their argument is? Like, shh, keep your voice down. Micah's going to hear. Don't you want a better job? I mean, you're a priest, but you're a priest of one guy. Imagine you're the pastor of a church of one. Why don't you come be the pastor of a mega church? <laughs> so that's basically what they're saying. Come be the priest of... All of Dan, the whole tribe, you will be our chaplain. for the. This is a huge, prestigious promotion. Verse 20, the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved images and went along with the people. So he's not, he's not representing them to Yahweh. He's representing them to these idols that he made. And so they turned and they departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. In other words, if Micah comes with a force from behind, he's going to encounter soldiers and not children. Um, and when they had gone a distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And basically there's a shouting match and he's like, hey, what are you doing? And they're like, why don't you come and try to take them from us? And, and basically he just leaves because there's nothing he can do about it. Um, and... So then they reckon, oh, well, this must be from God because it worked. It worked. And so that's the main point here, again, is that, well, it worked. So Micah gathers as many men as he can. They're armed and dangerous, the text tells us, and they head out and they go and take this place. So at this point, we have to remember Micah baited the Levite with the offer of money. Now he's upset that these people have baited his Levite with the offer of money. He said 10 shekels in a shirt, and they said, well, we'll give you this big promotion. And I think one of the themes in this chapter is the danger of money, the, the danger of the love of money. 
the temptation to make decisions not based on God's will, but based on opportunities that come, based on open doors, based on convenience, based on money. And a lot of people think this way. They think, this must be from God, this job offer, because it pays more than the job offer that I have. Or maybe I should go to this university instead of that university because this university, they tend to, you know, their graduates make more money. And no one's talking about, well, is there a church in that town? Or, you know, or um, uh, what do you want to do with your life? Do you want to contribute to society? Do you want to, is this job going to take you away from your family? That kind of thing. People don't factor that in. They just think about, well, think of the money that's involved. You know, uh, sports scholarships and um, salary bumps and uh, various perks that come with investment banking and working on Wall Street. And I'm not saying all of those things are always bad. I'm just saying we need to learn to put those things in their place. Uh, sometimes the decision you make is going to be for less money if you're being wise. Because if you always just follow the money, you, you know, you're just like, you're like the dog that'll do anything for the treat. And Satan, when he knows your price, he'll just write you a check. And he will lead you away from the church. He'll lead you away from the Lord. He'll lead you away from the, the direction that you should be going because that's where the money is. Paul warned in 1 Timothy 6, verse 8 to 10, very famous passage. Paul says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, the craving for more money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6, 8 to 10. And that's kind of what's happening here, is money is driving the plot line in the story. Micah steals the money. He feels bad. He gives the money back. The mom uses the money to build this little shrine. They, they use the money to lure in a Levite who sells his soul for a paycheck. Then the Danites come. They lure him away with a promotion. And the, all these doors keep opening. And he's like a rat in the maze just looking for the open door and going through and doesn't realize that it's, it's leading him straight to the, I don't know, wherever the dangerous part of the maze is, the cat's den. Um, this, is, this is what it's like when you make decisions just based on whatever's easiest, whatever the next opportunity is. Sometimes you just say no to an opportunity. Just say no. I'm content. I don't need more. It was so liberating when I was uh, a very, very young believer, and there was um, an opportunity I had to jump ship from the job that I was in to go and do this. Um, it was like a permit scheme thing. I didn't know what a permit scheme was at the time, but I knew that the person talking to me was extremely wealthy, and he kept telling me all the other people that he works with are extremely wealthy and that I could be extremely wealthy. And so he said, what you need to do is do this thing full-time so that you can become very, very rich. And I remember so clearly when you asked me this question, because I was like, I'm not really interested. I'm, I'm not a salesman. I'm not going to do this. You know, I'm trying to back out of it. And I remember he said, don't you want more money? And I said, no. I, I have everything I need. I'm kind of content. He was like, well, don't you want more money for being able to bless other people? And I was like, no. <laughs> I mean... No, I'll, I'll bless them with what I have rather than give up my job and do this whole thing and become all consuming. And he was like, well, don't you want more money to do more for the Lord? And I said, no, no, I don't. <laughs> I'll, I'll do what I can for the Lord with what I have and, and trust the Lord. And it was like he didn't have 
a line for that because it's almost like he'd never met somebody who said, yeah, no, I don't want more money. Um, but it's such a liberating thing. And I, I mean, I've, I'm not saying that I, I've conquered that always, but in that moment, it was a very liberating thing to be able to say, no, I am content with, with what I have. If, if these people had that contentment, I think they would have been able to avoid many of these harmful desires that plunged them into ruin. So don't make decisions based on what's easy, but on what God reveals is right. So that's the first point. Opportunity is not always blessing. Let's look at this. Success is not always blessing. So firstly, we saw there um, in verse 18, they go to Micah's house, they take the carved images, you know, there's that interchange. And this is their, their offer to him in verse 19. Um, is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or the priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And at that point, if, if the Levite had said, look, I'm content with what I've got, uh, I mean, what he was doing was still wrong, but <laughs> he would have avoided leading this clan because what happens in the history of Israel is that this whole clan, Dan, becomes entrenched in idolatry and because of this Levite, and they lead the other 10 tribes, the northern tribes of Israel, into idolatry, and this sparks a lot of the judgment to come. And it all boils down to this moment here where there's this, this come and be our priest. So he takes the ephod and the household gods and all that in verse 20, and he goes with them. And the Levite feels like he's landed on his feet. He went from unemployed, wandering around, to a private priest of a rich guy, to now the priest of this megachurch here, He's climbing the corporate ladder. And so if you're viewing this, you're saying, well, is God blessing his ministry? I mean, he went from just being a Levite to being a well-paid Levite of one guy to, a, you know, a rich and famous, powerful Levite to a whole tribe. And it looks like God's blessing this. If you're not paying any attention to what God has said is right and wrong, and you're just looking at circumstances, which is an error people make. And so... The sign of blessing problem keeps going. Verse 26. The people of Dan went their way. Uh, and then they have this conflict with, with Micah. Um, verse 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest that belonged to him. They came to Laish, a people quiet and unsuspecting. And the narrator is going out of the way to kind of make us feel sorry for this little village of people that aren't doing, like, they're just minding their own business. And verse 27 says, And struck them with the edge of the sword. And burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. And it was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. And they, the Danites, rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan. After the name Dan, their ancestor, who was born in Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And here's our big reveal. Here's the dun-dun-dun. Jonathan the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So here we've got this crazy little twist that the narrator has known all along and has kept from us. All along he's just been calling this man, you know, the young Levite, this young man who was there. It turns out that he is the grandson of Moses. Moses. Moses' son, Gershom. Remember, um, Gershom means sojourner. That's what he uh, means, like immigrant. That's what Moses named his son, born in the wilderness. And then, because, well, he, because he was 
an immigrant out of Egypt at that point. And this guy has a son named Jonathan. Yonathan means a gift of God. So this is a godly family. It's a godly line. And this grandson is now tainting the reputation of his grandfather. And it's probably what gave him such prominence. Remember, they, Micah doesn't seem to know who he is, but the Danites recognized him. Oh, you're, you're Moses' grandson. So, you, you know, Moses was the most famous figure in anyone's, he's a household name. Um, and, and so his grandson must have been known. And now this guy is going to be a priest to the tribe of Dan in perpetuity. It's until when, did it say? Until the exile. So you see what's happening here. And you don't see it in this part of the story, but as we read into Kings and, uh, you know, Samuel and Kings and there, we'll get to the exile. This man causes this entire tribe, which causes the entire 12 tribes. As you remember, there's a, a break There'll be a break between um, Judah and Benjamin, which is called Judah, and then Israel. You've got the kings of Israel, which are the ten tribes, and the kings of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. That comes later. And those ten tribes are stuck in idolatry throughout the rest of the Bible until they get exiled, which is what the whole book of Daniel, you know, he goes out in the exile. And Jeremiah, and it's that 70 years of captivity, and it all boils down to this grandson of Moses. It's just really sad really sad that Moses' reputation, his legacy, is tainted by this young guy. But the question here is, did it work? You know, it depends on how you define success, but it looks like, it, it looks like this guy is successful. He's successful at his career. He finds this great opportunity. He becomes rich. Now he's become powerful. Now he's in charge of this whole clan, eventually the tribe, and eventually all the ten tribes of Israel. This looks like a blessed ministry, but he's leading them away from Yahweh. Obviously, he's, God's not the one blessing this. You see, every other, tribe, every other time a tribe had taken land, it was an impossible battle that they won miraculously so that God got the credit. Here they're looking for someone unsuspecting that they can take and be successful over without God's help. It's a completely different mission. And yet it's successful. They take the town. They burn it down. They move in. They change the name. They're like, woohoo, we have land. God must be in this. And how often do we still make decisions that way? I know I shouldn't have done that or whatever, but look how it turned out. Or people will sometimes ask this question. It sometimes happens when you talk to a couple that's considering divorce. And they'll say, God... Once, I know that this is an unbiblical divorce. I know I shouldn't do this, but surely God wants me to be happy. And I mean, it's a heartbreaking moment, but you, I have to be the bearer of bad news. There's no verse in the Bible that says God wants you to be happy. It's not what he wants for you. Think of all the Christians in history who weren't happy, but who were holy. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to be happy in him. He wants you to be joyful in him. He wants you to be joyful in obedience, and he wants you to be joyful in eternity, and that's not always compatible with you being happy in your circumstances here on earth. And yes, God wants you to have a good marriage, but he wants you to do it not by starting a new one, but by working on the one that he gave you in his principles so that he gets glory. But this happens all the time. This happens in ministry. It happens in work. It happens in family. People just think, well, this opportunity is good for me. It must be what God wants for me. This happens in churches. It's called pragmatism. When the church says, let's do, we need to get more people in. There's more people, 
I don't even know what the point of having more people is if they're not believers, but let's do things to get more people in. So we're going to talk less about sin and less about repentance, and we're going to make it more of a fun experience and whatever, more like a country club, you know. And then guess what? It works. It works. You go read the seeker-sensitive literature on, on how to build churches. Those churches fill up. But when you start filling up churches without sin and without preaching about sin and repentance and the gospel and anything offensive in the Bible, you're, you're completely stripping the gospel of its saving power. Because then people will think that they're Christians because they go to the church, but they're not. And so does it work? Is that success? Well, it depends on what your definition is. Is this God? Is this success in God's eyes? Or is this success in the world's eyes? I told you about something that happened with me when I, I'd met a, a friend from high school that I hadn't seen for many, many years. It turns out we were living in the same town and our kids were playing sports together and we see each other in the field and we're like, oh my goodness, we hadn't seen each other in I don't know what it was, like 20 years. Um, and we were catching up. So, and, so what do you do? And, well, I'm the CEO of this company and I started that business and I sold it for that and this and this. And it was like, wow, it was like, I'm so happy for you. And he says, so what do you do? And I say, well, I'm the pastor of the, the church down the road. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, oh. He looked like shocked. And he said, I, I just always assumed that you would be successful. And I, I think he meant it as a compliment, maybe. Like when he knew me in high school, I was like the kid that tried to get good grades or something. I mean, I don't know exactly what he meant, but I was called a little of God. And I, I just sort of smiled and I said, well, you know, success means different things to different people. You know, and, I, and that was the end of the discussion. But I, I, I was tempted to be like, well, let me tell you what I have done, you know. And I was like, no. You know, if I die and I have been faithful to the Lord, I've been faithful to my wife, you know, I've done my, the best that I can as, as a parent, you know, I've been faithful to the Lord and teaching his word and shepherding a flock. And, I mean, what more is there than to live your life for the Lord? You know, it doesn't matter if you're the CEO of whatever, if you sold a business or made a business, or you made a product or you invented the iPhone. If you die and go to hell, you're unsuccessful, right? I mean, what is success? What is God blessing? So we need to remember Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is where the psalmist says, he looks at the wicked and he says, the wicked are flourishing and they're successful and I'm not successful. They're prospering and I'm not prospering. What's happening? And he says, verse 13, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I've done the right thing and it didn't even work. And throughout Psalm 73, he lists this, the wicked. Now his hair has grease in it because, you know, in those days, greasy hair, I think, was a sign of wealth. And he's fat because he's eating so much and he doesn't have to work. And, he, you know, his business is prospering. And it, wherever he goes, he's just got all the success. And here I am, and I'm struggling, and I'm struggling. Like, why have I even bothered to stay innocent before the Lord? And he says, this is how I, I, I thought I would think. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I went, you know... Then I went with God's people and I was reminded of what true success is. I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. The prosperous, the wicked's end. 
truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. That's success. That's success. It doesn't matter when this person, doesn't matter how rich and famous and powerful they are, it doesn't matter if they become the chaplain to the entire nation of Israel. If they die and they've led people into idolatry, that's not success. Because that's going to show up on Judgment Day. And you, you might die and no one even knows your name. And you've never had any impact that you are even aware of. But if you have been faithful to God, he would have used what you have done to his glory and that shows up on Judgment Day. So just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean that God is happy with the way that you're spending it or the way that you made it. And that was the lesson of the Levites. This Levite's loyal only to himself and his own agenda. And he looks like he's having success. And the Danites think that they've had success and they've got the city. But what's really fascinating is in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in chapter 7, there is a list of the 12 tribes of Israel in verses 5 to 8. Revelation 7, verse 5 to 8. It's where God chooses 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes to represent him during the tribulation. There's a lot of debate on what all of that represents, but what's really fascinating is of the 12 tribes, Joseph is mentioned and his son Manasseh is men mentioned, but Dan is not mentioned the only tribe not mentioned. To keep it at 12, usually it's Ephraim and Manasseh, but then Joseph shows up there as well to, to keep it as 12. But one of the tribes is missing, and it's Dan. So Dan is having great success in Judges chapter 18. But when the judgment comes, and the end of time, in Revelation 7, they're not even there. So I want you to remember that the next time you have an opportunity to do something that's going to get you success now. But it's not success in God's eyes. Go read Psalm 73. Read Revelation 7 and Judges 18. And just remind yourself, we don't live for the now. We live for the end. We live on God's timetable. And that's what we learn from the Levites, this loyalty. While we're nearing the end of the book of Judges, the narrator has been saving the worst for last. You need to prepare yourself for the darkest depth of Israel's depravity, which we will begin to see next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the definition of success that you give us in Scripture, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Father, we do love you, and we, we declare our allegiance to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been bound together in the Holy Spirit. We look forward to the day when all the injustices will be set right, when we will receive our reward and be told, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that each and every one of us here tonight who knows you, Lord Jesus, would be faithful to your call, that we would obey you, that we would worship you, and that we would define success as whatever it is that brings you glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen.